Hello and welcome to the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks for joining us. Let's listen in. Okay, so I'm going to get us underway here. Um, My name is David Bruner. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to the Long Story Short class. I see some new faces who haven't been here before, which is absolutely lovely. I'm so glad everyone's here. I'm going to pass around this legal pad. If you haven't come to this class before, would you please just leave your name on here? Um, And I'll add you to the weekly email list. Um, There was no weekly email list last week because I was uh, on vacation. But now that I'm back, I will resume that. Um, If you have signed that before, you do not need to do it again. I don't... I'm always glad to see people's names and think, yay, they came to the class, but it doesn't give me any additional information. Last week, I was in Dallas, Texas, uh, and there was an ice storm, and I know Becca told you all about that, so I'll briefly reprise what happened. So I flew from O'Hare. I thought I was going to fly from O'Hare to Dallas, and we made it all the way to Dallas, and we circled, and we circled, and we circled, and I thought, oh, dear, this is not not good. And then the captain said, well, we're going to go to Oklahoma City. And we said, okay. And we, then we asked the flight attendant, what's gonna happen when we get to Oklahoma City? And they said, well, we, we don't know. We're just gonna land and we're gonna see what happens. And it was actually quite wonderful because what followed was an enormously amusing series of interactions between air traffic control and the people flying the plane. And air traffic control was like, okay, land and go to the gate. So we went to this gate. And then air traffic control was like, no, don't go there. Go way out in the middle of nowhere over there. And we're going to refuel you. And then you're going to go back to Dallas. So we went way out in the middle of nowhere. And then air traffic control was like, no, go back to the gate. You're going back to Chicago. So at this point, people on the plane got very upset. And they were like, but if you want to get off in Oklahoma City, you can, but you ca- if you've checked any luggage, the luggage is going to go back to Chicago. So fortunately, I only had a carry-on bag, so I was able to get off in Oklahoma City. My friend's flight had also been diverted to Oklahoma City. We rented a car and drove three hours to Dallas, Texas. And we made it. And, and our two friends who came later in the day landed as though nothing was wrong. That was sort of the crowning <laughs> hilarity of the whole thing was we showed up at the airport and they were like, hey, Dave, hi, what's up? How has your day been? And I was like, let me, t- let me tell you how my day has been. So it was wonderful. Aside from that, aside from getting there, it was all wonderful. I spent a, a good week meditating on some themes about Sabbath and rest, which was lovely um, and We were just so glad to be there. So thank you for welcoming Alex. I listened to his teaching and it sounded really great. So I'm glad you had a good time with him. Um, I'm gonna pray, and I'm also gonna pray for our um, PowerPoint software. Um, Let me pray. Good and gracious God, our Father in heaven, thanks for gathering us here today. Thanks for these folks who have set aside time to come and study your word, to go a little bit deeper in following you. We pray, God, that as we study the story of Abraham, it would speak to us, that we would hear your word and your truth and take it to heart. And we pray to you against the wiles of technology, and we ask you to smooth the way (laughs) so that it'll work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so just a few things I want to let you know uh, before we dive in. So um, there's not going to be, in two weeks, Lent starts on Ash Wednesday, 
and rather than go, something didn't feel quite right about having this class go head to head with Ash Wednesday worship. So we're just gonna cancel this class. So there'll be one week in the middle of it where we won't have this class. I warmly invite you all to attend worship instead. Um, It's a wonderful opportunity to study, um, not to study, to reflect on the season of Lent and its meaning in your life. Instead of this class, what Becca and I are gonna do is record a one-off podcast um, called AMA, Ask Me Anything. We figure at that point in this series, a lot of you will have sort of um, interesting questions that you haven't had a chance to ask bouncing around your head. So if you have an interesting Bible question that you don't have the chance to ask in the next couple weeks, email it to me or to Becca, and we will, uh, uh, we will curate some of the very best questions and answer them as best we can on that podcast. So we want to invite you to ponder your Bible questions and email them to me. In addition tonight, in our continuing saga to make your intelligent and thought-provoking questions audible to our podcast audience, we're gonna try something new tonight, which is using a handheld mic. So when I ask you for questions, um, just raise your hand and I will hustle the microphone over to you or you can pass it over to whoever is gonna start talking next. And if you don't mind speaking into the microphone, that would help enormously. Are you with me? All that sounds good. Okay. Ah, and a miracle has occurred. Okay. Um, I am the second hardest working man at this class. The first hard working is Matt, who always has numerous challenges to attend to. Um, okay. So that's about the AMA. Okay. So this is week three. We're focusing on the theme of promise, specifically the theme of Abraham. Um, how many of you had read this material before? Several of you, not all of you, okay. Um, It's not always the most familiar to people, although we do know a decent amount about Abraham. So um, Genesis 4 through 11. Um, Last week we were looking at Genesis 3 and the, the story of the fall. This week we skip all the way to Genesis 12. And the first thing I want to do is actually not talk about Abraham. I want to offer some brief sort of blow by blow of, not blow by blow, a a brief, update of what happens in between those chapters. So um, I'll just click on this in case it can come up. So um, I'll just hit some highlights of those chapters. So Genesis 3 is the first sin, the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. Does anyone know what happens in Genesis 4 right after? Does anyone remember? Cain and Abel. Yeah, exactly. So Genesis 3 is the first sin. Genesis 4 is the first murder. So Cain kills his brother Abel. Um, In Genesis 6 through 9, you get the story of Noah and the flood, um, which is one of those stories we're often told as kids and we remember a certain way, and then you read the grown-up Bible version, and that's a lot more sobering than you remember. It's a story really about God's judgment against sin, that everybody on earth earth is sinning a whole lot, (laughs) and God sends this flood. And then in Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9, you get the story of the Tower of Babel. Um, So how many of you are familiar with that story? 
okay? So another story of divine punishment of human sin. So human be beings build an enormous tall tower. They become proud and haughty, and God sort of knocks the tower down and confuses human language. So the key thing to see theologically in all these stories is that they're all stories about the power of sin and it's spread throughout the world. So unfortunately, you know, you might hope that Adam and Eve making their big mistake in Genesis 3 is just like a isolated incident, right? They sinned once, but no one else is ever going to do it again. We've really learned our lesson. We promise God, you know, no, it doesn't work that way. So what, what happens is once introduced into the human <laughs> environment, sin kind of begins to spread. So um, that's the background to the story of Abraham, is this um, kind of sad or sobering spread of sin throughout the world. Now, let's, um, let's then begin looking at the story of Abraham. So I actually want you to turn, not to Genesis 12, turn to Genesis 11:27. So that's right at the end of chapter 11. So when you find it, you can give me an amen, or you can give me a Presbyterian amen, which is just going, hmm, okay. I heard an amen, a few, okay, a lot of thumbs, we're doing good, okay. So I'm just going to read this for you. So I'm going to read from 11.27 through 12.9. Now these are the descendants of Terah. Terah was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran was the father of Lot. Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages toward the Negev. 
Okay, so as is our custom, let's start by turning to a person next to you and just talk about the passage for a minute. Talk about what strikes you, find one thing that you think is interesting or unusual, or one question. So turn to the person next to you, discuss for a minute or two, we'll come back. Okay, so why don't we come back together? Um, I have this microphone here, so why don't you, who would like to share with me an interesting thought or a observation or a question, or volunteer your dialogue partner to share their interesting thought, dialogue, or question? This is also, this is like both, this is both a Bible study and assertiveness training for Presbyterians. Oh my gosh. Okay, I was just curious, he set up these altars in two different places and then moved on. Yeah. And I, I recognize he's giving God the glory, but who's, gonna, who's benefiting from those altars as he's moving on? It's an interesting... Forest place now. <laughs> right, so you've been to the Holy Land, right? No, no but it's, it probably is. I mean, if you go... So, you know, in, in Scripture, if Abraham builds a dozen altars, when you go to the Holy Land, there are 32 that you can visit. Right, because I mean, because they're all claiming to be the place he established. It's it, it's a whole thing. Um, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think this is this is something you certainly see throughout the Old Testament. So Jacob's ladder, right? When Jacob has the vision of angels ascending and descending on the ladder into heaven, he builds an altar right there. I mean, I think it was. Nowadays, we consider houses of worship settled, right? You know, this is our house, we have a mortgage, we have light bills, yada, yada, yada. I don't know if it, I, my instinct is to say, I don't know if it was that way in that culture, that sort of itinerant places of worship were more common. No, I was just wondering if um, just as, you know, building a temple was uh, the place in which they would be able to find God, mm -hmm. I wonder if, if Abram thought that building an altar would, would also bring, bring forth the presence of God. Maybe. I'm not sure. Ken? So what motivated Abram to get this, he got this vision, okay, I'm gonna pack up my family and go there. Yeah. And he really wasn't a faithful person. At least, I, I don't understand, they just, oh, right. okay. I mean, what happened to make you do that <laughs> to him? Yeah. So that's, that's, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that. So you put your finger on something I want to, we'll discuss in more detail. So sit on that for a second and then we'll come back to it. Who else wants to ask a question or make an observation? Hey, Diane. We've read a number of passages where they talk about age and mm -hmm. this is another one and the ages are way out of proportion to anything we know in terms of somebody living to you know, 200 and something or whatever, sure. or Sarah having a baby when she's old. And, and right. we were wondering, is, is emphasizing the age for just the point of making it stand out and making us pay attention to that passage? Or, you know, I mean, you can believe God would make anything possible sure. and, and somebody that old could have a baby, but um, it's, there seems to be a lot of it, and we don't really understand the significance. Mm -hmm. 
So that was also the question that um, Peg asked. Um, so she was first through the gate in the AMA question contest. So she, she wins absolutely nothing, but she gets the recognition. Um, so I'll tell you the answer I think, an answer I think is correct, and I'll do some more digging for the AMA episode. So I, my understanding is that that is a um, cultural way of indicating the virtue and um, flourishing life of the people they're talking about. So um, in, nowadays, to live to a ripe old age is considered nice, but back then, in the ancient world, to live to a ripe old age was considered a great blessing. Of course, this is, you know, long before the invention of penicillin and modern medical technology, things like that. So many people did not live to an advanced age. And if you made it, if you were, you know, if you made it that old, that was considered great good fortune and a sign of God's favor. So I think by, I don't think the text is, in other words, making the literal claim that these people lived to be two or three centuries old. I think they're saying these were good, solid, straightforward people who enjoyed divine favor. That's what I've read. Um, I'm going to do some more digging to see if there's, um, to see if that sticks, but I think that's a good starting place. Brian. What were the Canaanites like? Because what I read is that God said, okay, go to the land of Canaan, mm -hmm. and that will be your land, which was already occupied by the Canaanites. Sure. So was there something about the Canaanites that we didn't like? Because why didn't we go to a suburb of Canaan? That, right. <laughs> like nobody was there. Right. And it's really cool. I've kept it for you. And um, let's go there. Nobody knows about it. Let's, sure. Yeah, that's good. They've just so, opened a brand new housing development yeah, right yeah. outside Canaan. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and this will... This will come, um, of course, in a few weeks in this series, we get into the book of Joshua, right? So you get the story of Israel under Joshua entering into the promised land and really evicting the occupants who are there. So um, I don't think there's any background in Genesis 1 through 12 that suggests a sign of it's not like they've, I don't believe there's any sign they've done something wrong. So I, I think it's, it is a tale primarily about the unmerited favor of God and not about his punishing other people groups. Um, Beth. I'm just looking at the map in my Bible and where Canaan is, mm -hmm. is pretty, um, probably luxurious land. Yeah, I mean, so part, uh, part of what you see, right, is that the, the, in the Middle East, like, land with um, close to rivers, close to body of waters, green land was to be sought after, right? So certainly um, that may have something to do with it. Um, anything else? Frank? Question. You know, God sent the flood because the whole world was evil. Yeah. Well, they didn't have... Abraham didn't know about God. They didn't know about God, so they didn't know right from wrong, perhaps. And the, uh, you know, that came later when we got the Ten Commandments. Yeah. But I was thinking that 
maybe Satan, because I, I, I kind of was understood before Christ came, Satan was in charge of the world. He could do whatever he wanted. And maybe that changed things. And I, I don't know. That's the question I'm asking. Yeah. Is Satan as powerful? Was he very powerful then? Is he diff not as powerful mm. now? Or do we even know? Sure. Yeah. That's a really interesting question. So I think the story of the flood is, is a, it's primarily a metaphor. I don't know if an actual flood happened or not. Um, I think it is a story, a true story, about God's judgment of sin. It was something I read of, it was one of these shows on TV years ago, yeah. that suggested there was a huge body of water yeah. with a land bridge in between, and then that ruptured, and that flooded the whole area. It's, it's possible, right? I mean, um, it's possible there was a flood. I mean, the, the people I read on the topic are more skeptical about it and say if there was a massive flood that covered the whole world, we would have some evidence. Maybe there was a smaller scale flood that was just affecting a more limited number of people. I mean, I try and read, trying to read the Bible as God's word to me now, right? The, the thing that stands out is, you know, I mean, it, is the awful extent of human sin, right? So, you know, at the beginning, it says God was sorry that he made humanity, <laughs> which is pretty harrowing, right? I mean, it's almost like Genesis 1 is God saying, tov, 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 good, 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 this world that I've made. And by Genesis 6, he's asking for his money back, right? Um, but it's also, it's also a story of God's love and patience and faithfulness to Noah and his family. So, you know, as far as the role of the devil and all that, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, sin's at work in the world, right? And it's spreading and multiplying. Um, it's God's good world. He's, he's still faithful to it. He's active to redeem people. And the power of evil is at work. I mean, I think those, those are the things I feel fully authorized to say. The rest I'm happy to leave uncertain. C.S. Lewis in his writing said that every civilization throughout the world, even if they were remote, they had some sense of right and wrong. You know, yeah. you get married, you stay married. You, you don't kill somebody, you don't lie, yeah. you don't steal, whatever. And he attributed that to we're made in God's image and we understand uh, right and wrong to yeah. a certain extent. Yeah. No, I, I think that's very true, right? That wherever you go, everybody's got a different sense of right, of what specific acts might be right or wrong, but everybody's got a sense of right or wrong. You would be very hard pressed to find a civilization that didn't have some sense of that. I mean, I, I agree with him. I think that is a sign of the divine image. Um, yeah, of, of God's presence pointing us toward him in some way, shape, or form. Um, okay, good questions, everybody. Let me go back now to what Ken was talking about, because that's kind of the, one of the main points I want to explore, and we'll have some more opportunity for questions. Okay, so as we look at this stuff about Abraham, so the biblical stories about Abraham run about 10 chapters. So it's from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22. And it's helpful to think of them as interconnected. Um, they're episodes in a larger story. Um, a dramatic story with many chapters, right? I love Star Wars. Star Wars has nine chapters, right? Um, starting all the way at the beginning and running all the way through episode nine. 
And it's really a story about two things. If you want to understand it, there's just two, two headings to understand. It's about God's call, God's, or, or God's promise. God says to Abraham, I will make you great. I will make a great nation out of you. I will give you an heir, and I will give that heir land, land and heirs. And it's about human obedience to the divine call. Or, or you could say faith. So Abraham says, yep, okay, I believe you. I'm going to do what you tell me to do, and I believe the things you say are true. By the way, I have a habit of, I just call him Abraham all the time. At this point in the story, he's not yet Abraham, he's Abram. His name changes, I think, in chapter 16. So I hope that's not confusing. That's my custom. You can call him whatever you want, and I won't look at you funny. Okay, so let's start with one angle of Ken's question. So why does God choose Abraham? What do you think the answer to that question is? He must consider Abraham to be a very virtuous man. Yeah, that's a possibility. That's, a, that's certainly a possibility. Um, anyone else want to add something to that? He had a wife who didn't have kids. He certainly did. Maybe he chose him just because of that. He was first alphabetically. I have not considered that thesis before. I'm going to bounce that one off of my Old Testament scholar friends. I don't, I don't think there was an no, I, I think they would, they would be quick to point out that the next patriarch who follows is Moses and not Barak, right? It seems to punch some holes in what we might affectionately call the Johnson thesis. Uh, it's very interesting that there is no reason explicitly offered by the biblical text for why God chooses Abraham. The Bible doesn't give us a reason. What the Bible does give us is many reasons for God not to choose Abraham. So Abraham is advanced in years. He doesn't have any kids. Um, by the standards of ancient Near Eastern society, where having a big brood of kids was considered a sign of success, he is uh, a, a very mixed result. Part of what we see here is, is, I think the reason is right there in verse two and three. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, something very important is happening here in chapter 12. So chapter 3 is about the fall into sin. Chapters 4 through 11 are about the spread of sin and the chaos it wreaks all over the world. Chapter 12 is, is kind of God's response. That here in chapter 12, God is saying, okay, um, sin has taken root in the world and is having destructive effects on the creation I love. I am going to intervene and make an effort to, to set things right, to begin a process of 
redeeming or setting right the world I have made. So um, there might be an echo of Genesis 1 here. So Genesis 1 famously begins, God said, let there be light. God said, let there be, and so forth. It's all about God speaking. So here, God, you could say that God embarks on a kind of recreation of the world or a kind of rebooting of the world. This time he's not making a new world exactly. He's making a new people. He's beginning the process of creating a covenant people through which he can bless the whole world. So um, maybe an intentional echo of God's speech in Genesis 1. Um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Romans chapter 4. So Romans chapter 4, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, is all about Abraham. And it's all about Abraham um, as a uh, it's all about Abraham in a number of different ways. So Paul basically says, God's grace and mercy is like his creation of the world from nothing because it makes us righteous before him even though we are not righteous. Um, and he, Paul says this amazing phrase. He says, God calls into existence the things that do not exist. So in other words... You know, he's talking about the God creating the world, right? God creates the world from nothing. Let there be a world. Boom, there's a world. That's what Genesis 1 says. Paul is over here talking about the forgiveness of sins, that if you believe in Christ, boom, you are a new creation. The old person, the old you, with all of those trespasses and sins has been nailed to the cross and is dead, and a new person has come to life. And in between, there's this figure of Abraham. Abraham, who is called out of obscurity to what? Make a new covenant people. To represent God's redemptive purposes to the wider world. So I'm wondering if that last bullet point is the point of the question earlier. I love that line. God calls out of obscurity one man. Isn't that representative of any of us then? And, and moving forward, can't we be the obscure one uh, that spreads through our people, mm -hmm. our family, our friends, our acquaintances, uh, a, a conduit mm -hmm. uh, to um, have them be blessed? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, so I think this is, you know, we're talking about, we're talking about the, divine, the divine calling. Why does God choose Abraham? And the answer is there's nothing about Abraham. <laughs> there's nothing about Abraham. But there's something about, it's almost like the things that would disqualify Abraham are the things that qualify him, right? So the, the fact that he's, um, he's old, he doesn't have any kids, that he lives in this relatively obscure part of the Middle East. These are the things that make him fitting and appropriate. Sorry. So um, are there other questions or thoughts about, about why God chooses Abraham? Well, one of the things that I saw was um, back in Noah's day, um, didn't he 
bless Shem, right? As part of, and Shem is part of Abram's. Um, wow, that's really interesting. So he's be, so God is faithful, and when Noah, as a faithful man, sure, um, blessed the descendants of Shem. Hmm. I hadn't I hadn't picked up on that, but. I, I believe what you're saying is true, right? It, it, it may well be that that's woven into it, right? That Abraham is depicted as descending from that family of Shem in, in part as a reflection of God's continued faithfulness to Noah as well as to Abraham. Yeah, that could be really interesting. Anything else that I can make clear to you, Peg? So one other point about the whole thing of him being an obscure one man, if the heck that he was chosen and that he ends up becoming the father of all these descendants, which is somewhat of a miracle, mm -hmm. makes it more impressive, the same way that Mary conceived as a virgin. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're running into here is one of the bedrock principles of God's action in the whole Bible, where God kind of, you know, God specializes in hopeless situations. And what you see in Scripture is again and again, God doesn't start with people who have a lot of hope and then help them up even further. He doesn't start with situations that look like they're pretty well together and then give them an extra little nudge. He intentionally picks hopeless situations <laughs> as a way of making his power known, of disclosing his character. So I think the connection to the, to the virgin birth of Jesus is very apropos, right? That there's, there's no human contribution on the male side to Jesus at all, right? That he's conceived by Mary solely by the power of the Holy Spirit and without any assistance from a human male. I think that's quite remarkable. Um, and of course, the, the other thing is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, right? That that's naturally a situation that's completely and utterly hopeless by human lights that God chooses to display his power. So, you know, we're, we're knocking on the door of important stuff here. Okay, part of what we're dealing with here as well is the mystery of divine choice. The mystery of divine choice. Um, in theology talk, we call this divine election. It means divine choice, <laughs> um, right? When we have an election here in the state of Illinois, it's a choice that people go to the polls and they choose who their rulers are going to be. Same thing here. There's this perennial mystery in, in the Christian faith and in the Jewish faith about why God chooses particular people. Why Abraham? Why the Jewish people? So we've been talking about this. Why Jesus? Um, I love this little couplet from the poet Ogden Nash. Have any of you ever heard of him before? How odd of God to choose the Jews. It's an entire poem. Um, and I think he intended it as a little bit of doggerel, like a little tossed off poem for cocktail parties or something to make people laugh, but it's actually, I think it's actually quite profound, right? That the, the biblical God sometimes proceeds in ways that strike us as a little bit quirky or unusual. Um, another name for this is something I've talked about here before, but it's the scandal of particularity. So the idea we find in the Bible is that God chooses one particular people group as his people group and um, creates a covenant with them and not with other people, 
and, it, and you know, this is a particular group of people at particular points in time, in particular contexts, right? So in certain, in certain very specific ways, like um, uh, I, I wanna say this, this is a little bit dangerous to say, like in certain ways, the message of Abraham is not universal, right? Like the, the truth that God reveals to Abraham it's obviously intended to be a light to all the nations, but it's revealed to this one particular person in a specific context. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Okay. The scandal of particularity, the mystery of divine choice. So we've been talking about this a little bit already. Hopefully this slide will flesh this out more. So God chooses to work through particular people and groups to bless all humanity. Um, Abraham is exemplary in this respect, but the principle is not limited to him. So one thing you see throughout the whole Bible again and again and again is that God chooses to work through particular individuals whom he chooses, and then those individuals become part of larger groups of people. This is consistent in God's choice of Israel as his covenant people, and it's not just in Abraham, right? So in Isaiah 49, this was an example I picked pretty much at random, but there are about a million other examples in the Hebrew Bible. God says, I will give you, the people of Israel, as a light to the nations, that my salvation will reach to the end of the earth. When we get into the prophets, you're gonna be struck by this vision again and again and again. One thing the prophets continually lift up is Israel, you have a vocation to be the light to the whole world. Quite, this is one of the reasons the prophets are so often ticked off, right? It's because Israel is not holding up its end of the bargain. They're not behaving like the covenant people. But all these beautiful visions about beating swords into plowshares, right? They all come from this larger sense of this is Israel's vocation, is to bring peace and justice and the knowledge of God into the whole world. Similarly, you see in the book of Revelation, right? This idea in the book of Revelation, who's worshiping Jesus the Lamb on the throne in heaven? It's not just Jews, it's everybody. It's every ethnicity, it's every culture, it's every people group, every tribe and nation and language is worshiping the lamb who is slain. And implicit in that is a validation of these early Christian efforts to reach out to Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus. That Jesus was a Jewish Messiah, but his death and resurrection were good news for Gentiles as well. And so um, the truth of the gospel is runs through particular people with a universal scope. That's the sort of contradiction or tension I'm trying to lay out there. So that last bullet point, God's truth is universal. It is intended for everyone, but its universal truths can only be learned by engaging with the witness of particular people. So go back to geometry class, okay? I, this is a weird analogy, but I promise it's very short, so you won't have to walk very long to get with me to where I'm going. So how, how many angles do you need to make the interior of a triangle? Do you remember? Three, three. and what is, what's the sum total of those three angles? 180, right? 180 degrees are the interior angles of a triangle. 
Anyone can teach you that. That truth is impersonal. You can go to any mathematics classroom in the world and they'll teach you the same basic facts, right? Three interior angles in a triangle. The interior angles add up to make 180. That's how you know it's a triangle. If someone says, hey, this is a triangle, but the interior angles don't add up to 180, you haven't got a triangle. Christianity is not like that. Christianity is not a universal truth in the way the universal truths of mathematics are universally true. If you wanna know whether Christianity is true, you have to start telling a story about particular groups of people and say, long ago, 2,000 years ago, there was a group of Jews who had a rabbi named Jesus who was crucified, who came back, and they told us all about him. And it's universally true for everyone but it's very specific as well. Okay, I feel like you're good and confused now. So I'm gonna stop and take some questions. Um, how can I clarify what I've said? Or what are, you, what are you wondering about at this point? If it's universal, then why is it particular? If it's universal, why is it particular? I'm talking to two microphones at once. <laughs> um, well, I don't know, you gotta ask God, <laughs> all right? I mean, I think um, God, God decided to not present the fundamental truth of the world in that way. I mean, so later in this slide, I get into um, 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians is my favorite book of the Bible because it is the best book in the Bible, okay? Gospel of John, it's fine. First Corinthians is way better, okay? So if I'm successful in this Bible class, at the end, you're all gonna be like, First Corinthians, greatest book in the whole Bible. So wait till we get to First Corinthians. I'm so excited. First Corinthians 1, it's amazing. Paul says, the gospel is foolishness to Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews because God's wisdom, um, God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. And so I think, Ken, the only answer, the only real answer I can offer to your question is that one, right? That God wanted to show that the very height of worldly wisdom and strength is still not, not anything to him, <laughs> right? That he stands in opposition and, and transcendence even to the very heights of worldly power and majesty. Sure. I, I also think it's some of that. So Ken was saying, you know, is, is it um, more personal? Is it about starting with one-to-one -one relationships and then spreading out into the world based on that? I certainly think there's something to that as well, right? So if what we see in the Old Testament is God choosing particular people and particular people groups to be the instruments of his redeeming love, right? So first Abraham, then the Jews, first Moses, and then the kings, and then the prophets. Um, God, you know, part of what we see throughout the Old Testament is God chooses people to do his work. And so, in the end, in the New Testament, what happens? God becomes a person himself. <laughs> and, then, and then allows human, other human beings to take up that message and spread it to the far corners of the world. Could it be that... Um that choice is why it's not universal? 
Yeah, I mean, so this is something that's come up before. Um, I mean, I, I certainly think there's, I certainly think that's an element of it, yes. So I think um, part of what we see in Scripture is God's desire for a free, authentic response to God's grace that, you know, presumably God could have just snapped his fingers and made people want to obey him and love him, but he hasn't done that, right? He's chosen a, a different sort of, grace works differently than that. Um, yeah. Yeah, we have to decide. I mean, I, I think um, the Reformed tradition tends to be, tends to have a lower evaluation of human free will than some other Christian traditions. And I think I'm very reformed in that respect. Um, I think free will certainly plays a role. I think the, the, I tend to look for my explanations less on the side of human free will and more on the side of God's, God's character and God's grace. That doesn't make me right, but that's where I tend to look. Um, right, I mean, I'm thinking about like, yeah, I think, um, thinking about like Paul on the road to Damascus, right? When, when God decides it's time to convert Saul and make him into Paul, it happens. Um, so I, I tend to, for me, the explanations that are most compelling are the ones on the side of divine grace, but that's just my point of view. Actually, the question that I had really focused on um, why this is termed a scandal. Yeah. And in looking up uh, scandal of particularity through a Google search, okay. it seems like a lot of the uh, focus is on questioning how God came into the in, onto this earth in the form of a human being. Mm -hmm. You know, the divine nature of yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And I don't know if you recall from the Duke Divinity School, Dr. Jeffrey Wainwright? <laughs> yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> I was just reading one of his books yes, the other day. He, uh, he says the scandal of particularity is all of the messy challenges that come about when followers of Jesus say that the God of all creation, quote, the ground and source of all being, close quote, was also somehow mysteriously embodied in a vulnerable baby who pooped his diapers. I, I think that's an excellent statement. Um, I mean, that's specifically focused on Jesus. Part of what I'm trying to say, so Genesis 15 is not about Jesus in an explicit way, but it's the same modus operandi, right? So instead of choosing, instead of God becoming incarnate in Jesus, it's God developing a covenant relationship with this particular ancient man and his descendants. How odd of God to choose the Jews. Why didn't God choose Native Americans? Why didn't he choose 16th century Japanese people? Why didn't he choose 14th century Estonians, right? God could have chosen any people group or any individual to be Abraham, but he chose Abraham. That, it's the same sort of idea, but specifically on the soil of Abraham in the book of Genesis. So do you think that when God calls, for instance, he got, calls Abraham, do you think he also compels Abraham to have the faith to do what he's asked to do? That's a great question. Um, 
when God calls Abraham, do I think he compels Abraham? No. I mean, so the second part of um, the story in Genesis 12 through 22 is about faith, about human obedience to God's call. And it was what we're going to get into in a second, and this is actually a very good transition, so thank you for facilitating my teaching. Um, no, I don't think God compels Abraham in, in the sense that, you know, he's not like a puppet on strings, right? So p- part of what you're seeing is this, there's genuine tension in this story, right? Of, and part of what you have to imagine reading this for the first time, the all 10 chapters, right? Part of what we're reading to find out is, is Abraham faithful to the, to the God that calls him? Part of what we're also reading to find out is, is this God that has called Abraham going to be faithful to him? And I think if you take either of those things out of, we need both those pieces in the puzzle for it to work appropriately. So, I'm cutting to the chase a little bit here. So, one of the things I love about Genesis and about the Bible generally is its brevity. This is often one of the most frustrating features of the Bible for um, some readers. And indeed, the Bible as a whole is a very long document, right? But read Genesis 12 through 22, It is a literary masterpiece. And by literary masterpiece, I mean there is, it's perfect not because there's nothing left to add, but because there's nothing left to take away. Like this is is pared down to the absolute essentials, right? Much in the manner of like a Ernest Hemingway story, right? Where there's not a superfluous word left in this book. And part of what you see is the lack of embroidery is intentional. It boils this story of divine call and human obedience down to its bare essentials. Um, It's about a God who calls and a human being who obeys. And, And it offers, somewhat frustratingly, it offers very little explanation about why Abraham obeys. Um, so how many of you know off the top of your head the story of Jesus calling the disciples in the Gospel of Mark? Some of us. So let me see if I can find it real quick. So um, put a finger in your Bible at Genesis 12, and then come with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 16. So this, this is a, a short passage. Mark chapter 1, verse 16. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee... He saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. The end. Okay, stop right there. Same thing, right? So same sort of situation where God comes along and just says, hey, you, stop doing that. Go do this other thing. And the person says, okay, and that's it. Now, That is the Bible's way of depicting the utterly compelling authority of God who calls us. And that's that's part of what we see here. Um, 
Abraham is a, Abraham's obedience is a paradigm of faith. It's a paradigm of faith. So, um, in Genesis 12, we get this, you know, the famous line, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That comes up in the New Testament again and again. It comes up in Romans 4, the passage I talked about earlier. Um, and it, the idea of faith, of course, not by accident, comes up all over Paul's writings. Um, we walk by faith and not by sight. That's 2 Corinthians. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. That's not Paul. That's the book of Hebrews, but it's a very similar idea. So part of what you're seeing here in Genesis is the beginning of an understanding of what faith is. That faith is a trust in God that, that accepts, that wagers on his goodness, even though it might not be evident at the time. So I think what we see here is this idea, right? That the Christian life is one of faith or trust that seeks understanding. So, if you look, when you read Genesis, when you read this story of Abraham, it's very natural to look at it and think, okay, if I had been Abraham, I would have asked God for a little more evidence and a little bit more time to discuss and debate the idea. And I would have consulted my banker and my mortgage broker and had some further conversations, right? And this is very natural and normal Genesis isn't trying to say any of that stuff is bad. It's not wrong to seek to act wisely. But what Genesis is saying is, at the end of the day, you have to decide whether or not you're going to take the risk. And so this idea of faith, faith is faith-seeking understanding. It's not having all the answers first and only then taking the step. It's taking the step first and then learning and understanding more about God as you go. This idea Becca talked about, courage, not certainty. Trust, not certainty. Um, some of you have heard this saying as well. Um, many years ago, I heard a pastor say, how do you spell faith, R-I-S-K? How do you spell faith, R-I-S-K? I love that. Um, as the son of a Midwestern lawyer, I am not temperamentally inclined to risk, but I, it's been a very important idea for me, right? That um, there's no way to get around the element of risk in following Jesus. Um, and, and I think you see that in this story and you see it throughout the Bible. Okay, so the Christian life is one of faith-seeking understanding. Um, one thing to notice about this story is that um, the, the entire story of Genesis 12 through 22, Abraham's faith and obedience are tested again and again. And of course, there's this infamously challenging kind of sudden death over time challenge to his faith in Genesis 22, um, when God asks him, fairly inexplicably to sacrifice his son Isaac. But nevertheless, God does keep his promise to Abraham. So what's, you know, 
Genesis 12 through 22 is a drama. It's a drama in several acts, and it's about the divine promise, and it's about human obedience. It's about, will God keep his word to Abraham and provide an heir? And it's about, will Abraham keep trust with God and do what God asks? And all the way through, they're, both of them are tested, right? Or, or it's not clear that God is going to keep his word to Abraham because it takes a heck of a long time for the heir God has promised to actually come around. And it's not clear if Abraham is going to keep his word to God. So throughout the story, there are all these twists and turns. What you have to know is that at the end of the story, Abraham is faithful to God and God is faithful to Abraham. So when Abraham makes this leap of faith, when he takes this wager and responds to God's command, he does take a risk, but it's a risk that pays off. God is ultimately faithful to him throughout the story. And that's obviously, obviously the story could theoretically have had a different resolution, <laughs> but it's incredibly important that it ends the way it does. I'm just trying to understand, when you say that Abraham was obedient to God, he actually took Hagar yep. and had a son with him. <laughs> he did not wait. Yeah. So I'm thinking, how is that obedient? And then look what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hagar and Ishmael are out there and it just spawned a a totally different mm -hmm. world mm -hmm. with them. Yeah, that's, um, what chapter does that happen in uh, um, where Abraham takes, um, yeah, 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 so look at, um, look at 16, chapter 16 in Genesis. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. So bear in mind, this is Genesis 16. So this is four chapters after God has originally appeared to Abraham to promise him an heir. Four chapters later, no kid. So she still has no children. She had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, you see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So I, I lo actually love this passage because it's so human. So what's going on here is an attempt, as it were, to force God's hand. And essentially say, God is not, look, it looks like this getting the child of promise thing is not working out with me, Sarah. So why don't you go over with her and see if you can get the child of promise through her? Now, um, that's not an arrangement any of us would consider moral or illicit today. In, in biblical times, it was not unheard of. It's not exactly what, it is not what we would today consider adultery, not least because it is done at the invitation of Sarah herself. The point of the story is not that Abraham is having sexual relations or begetting children with more than one partner. The point of the story is that it's an effort to get the child by another way. And th so this, when I say it's a story of divine promise, what eventually happens, right, is that there is a child um, and eventually God appears to Abraham and says, that's not the child I mean. 
That's not the child of promise. Sarah is going to give you the child of promise. But don't worry, I will look out for Hagar and Ishmael as well. So I, I actually think Genesis is, God is more kind to, to Hagar and Ishmael in Genesis than Abraham and Sarah are. So when, when Isaac comes along in Genesis, I think it's 21, as soon as Isaac comes along, Sarah is like, get Hagar and Ishmael out of here. I hate them. I don't want them around. And then that's where there's this miracle and God provides for them so that they don't perish. So it's very interesting. So in the eyes of scripture, God is able to walk and chew gum at the same time. He's faithful to Abraham and Sarah and their child of promise, but he's also able to look out for these people over here who are not the people um, who are not the recipients of his unique promise, but still matter to him. Now, part of your original question, Sandy, was like, well, what, how is Abraham admirable? Well, I don't think he's disobedient exactly. I think he's misinterpreting what God wants. So, so I think Abra Abraham is not a perfect person. There, there's no question about it, right? So one of the things that's so striking about the characters in Genesis 12 through 22 is they are very human. So a Abraham comes across, I think, overall in a positive light, but not, it is not hagiography. He is not displayed as a plaster model of perfect, virtuous humanity. And so this is an example of that. There are, there's, a, there's also the repeated story. It's repeated twice in Genesis 12 through 22 of they go to Egypt and Pharaoh has eyes for Sarah, and so Abraham pretends she's his sister, blah, 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 blah. Um, he's, he certainly screws up. There's no question about that. And... They were Yeah. Sure. So it seems like your concern is specifically why does God let, punish Adam and Eve so harshly in Genesis 3 for falling short of the standard he has set, whereas here in Genesis 12 through 22, Abraham and Sarah are doing all sorts of mistakes, but at the end of the day, they still get what God has promised to them. That's an interesting question, Sandy. I've never thought about that before. I think part, so this is where... This is one place where you have to get into the doctrine of original sin. So uh, traditionally, Christians have assigned more weight to Adam and Eve's misdeeds in Genesis 3 than to Abraham and Sarah's misdeeds subsequently. Indeed, the misdeeds of all subsequent people. Because um, as, as Paul says in Romans 5, right, it was through Adam and Eve's sin that sin entered the world, right? So as, as kind of the, as, as the first sinner, as the first parent, um, they are engaging in a type of sinfulness that is sort of unique in kind. Um, I think that's, that's the beginning of a response to that concern. Um, let me, if I may, let me talk about Genesis 22 for a few minutes. So, 
How many of you know the story of Abraham and God's call to sacrifice Isaac? Many of you. I encourage you to go read it again if you haven't read it already last week. It's, it's amazing. It's an incredible, incredible story. Um, what are your responses to that story? It's a nightmare, sure. It's a, a, yeah, it can be difficult and painful to read. The kid must have been freaking out, yeah. So once again, you see the, the, the absolute minimalism of Genesis, right? Where all the, the dialogue it records between Abraham and Isaac is so sparse. All Isaac says is, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, well, God will provide. And that's it. You know, there's no dialogue recorded when Abraham lays him on the altar to sacrifice him. There's just nothing. So what Isaac's point of view is, we're left to imagine. So very mysterious passage, very challenging, worth dwelling with over the course of many years. Um, I would say, if you ask me to summarize what this passage means, it's that God is worth sacrificing everything for but that God will not ask us, God will not ask us to make this kind of sacrifice, to do violence to the people and things we love. So in the ancient Near East, it was actually a relatively common, it was a not rare practice for people to offer their children as sacrifice to deities um, it's alluded to elsewhere in the Bible. There's actually, I don't remember where it is, there's actually a story of a battle where Israel goes out to fight another pagan tribe and Israel's winning the battle and then, and then the pagan king sacrifices his own son to his pagan god and then the other army wins the battle against Israel. So I think it was... In their world, I think it was considered a sign of a willingness to sacrifice something very valuable to you, right? And we, it's a little, it's crazy, but I think you can, we can at least understand it, even if we think I would never do that in a million years. And so I think um, what Genesis 22 is trying to do is say, God is worthy of that kind of sacrifice, but he does not ask it of you. And indeed, throughout the whole Old Testament, the idea, um, the idea of sacrificing a child to the God of the Hebrews is never done. It's not acceptable, um, which is relatively distinct. Um, I also think this is one of those passages that you, you just have to read as being about Jesus. Um, I'm not sure how... Um, Jews today read this passage, I'd actually be really interested to learn. As a Christian, I find this passage very compelling from a Christ-centered point of view, right? That at the very end of the story, um, the, the ram is there in the rushes, right? Um, very difficult not to look at that and say, okay, wait, that's Jesus. Um, those are just some scattered thoughts about that. Um, we're at time and a little after. So um, if you wanna stick around and um, talk more about Genesis 12 through 22, I'm happy to do that. 
If not, I look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks, everybody. This has been the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.